0: Hello, my name is Patricia Martins-Marx, and you are listening to the New Books Network. Today, I am speaking with Cassio Roth, the author of A Miscarriage of Justice, Women's Reproductive Lives and the Law in Early 20th Century Brazil, which was just recently out by Stanford University Press, I think in January of this year, actually. So among the the really many things that are wonderful about this book, I think one element that particularly struck struck for me was the thoughtfulness and the sensibility with which very heavy, and I would even say tragic at times, material was consistently approached. Um, So here, for example, I'm speaking about the tone and the language adopted in the book, uh, which I think reflects a set of very deliberate choices made by the author, such as speaking of fertility control, uh, rather than of the more recurrent language of reproductive justice or legalized access to abortion. And so I think overall, the book very successfully unpacks this really complicated Gordian knot that ties race, gender, citizenship, and problems of reproduction with policing, the medicalization, and the scientization of motherhood, as well as with the essentializing of female gender roles. And also, not to, not to forget that, the enforcement of rules about female desirable behavior and conduct in the realm of sexuality. And so before I speak with Cassia, one last thing that I would like to point out about the book is also the clarity with which it's written. It's really very approachable and takes really nothing for granted from the reader. And so this not only makes it extremely accessible, as I've mentioned, but also means that there's a lot of labor that was put into doing explanatory work around context. And specifically, I think, around the changing, the real flux, actually, of political and intellectual tides, as well as of scientific and medical movements in early 20th century Rio de Janeiro. And so... Having said this, I am sure this is a book that will elicit a great deal of interest from historians of Brazil and beyond, um, and specifically scholars interested in gender and sexuality, histories of legal medicine, public health, as well as race and reproduction. So, Cassia, welcome to the New Books Network, and thank you for writing this book,
1: well, thank you so much for that wonderful uh, introduction, and I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you about my book today.
0: Um, so as is usual, uh, we normally start with you and asking how do you end up in this field and um, how did you come up with this this theme for your research? And then if you could speak a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book, that would also be really interesting.
1: Yeah, so... I, as an undergraduate um, studying history uh, and Spanish in Latin America, was always interested in the idea of women not wanting to have children. Um, and as I, de- uh, as I dove into women and gender studies as an undergrad, that sort of idea, uh, which coalesced around the topic of abortion, um, stuck with me. And when I went to grad school. I think one of the things that I was uh, really searching for in books about population policies or reproductive rights uh, were women's experiences, that those were not really a central part of these larger histories about, let's say, the criminalization of abortion in Latin America. And that's what I wanted to focus on. Um, And as we often do, I just, you know, I, I went into the archive and I came upon a trove of documents um, in Rio de Janeiro, police investigations and court cases about uh, women's reproductive lives, not only abortion and infanticide, but also childbirth, miscarriage, stillbirth. Um, And I realized that these legal documents were exactly what I needed to center women's experiences, both in a medical sense, a legal sense, a personal, emotional sense. Um, And so I was really... I, I just went from from there. Um, in relation to the transition from dissertation to book, um, I was lucky and privileged enough to do almost two years of archival research while I was in graduate school, two years uninterrupted. Um, and I did way way too much research that I wasn't able to include in the dissertation. (laughs) That's a familiar problem. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Um, and so a lot of the transition from dissertation to book was going back to that research that I had already done, but not really processed or analyzed. Mm -hmm. Um, and also reframing i mean this is often what happens when you go from dissertation to book but reframing it from uh telling a story only to brazilianists to telling a story to historians Mm -hmm. of gender medicine the law i was really interested in this book um transcending the latin americanist divide right yeah and Mm -hmm. and inserting itself in debates in the history of medicine, the history of legal studies, um, gender sexuality. And while the kernel of that was in the dissertation, the framing was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say as, as a piece of advice is that um, my uh, advisor always told me, you know, the book manuscript just has to be good enough to not be rejected, <laughs> sight unseen. <laughs> and so that's what I did. It had to be good enough. I didn't agonize over everything and mm-hmm. I really looked at the readers reports and the revision um as a as a process you know the book doesn't have to be perfect um from the get-go it it gets better and better over time
0: i i have to say i think you really accomplished that i think the book is very readable if you're not a brazilianist and if you know nothing about the transition from um Empire to Republic to the Vargas period and the dictatorship. And you, you really guide people through the hand about the stakes of each different political regime and the changes. So I think that you did, you accomplished that really successfully. Um, and so in the intro, I mentioned the issue of language um and how you approach this um this topic but i was also interested more generally in how you dealt with this material because it's very heavy material and now you're telling me you did two years of archival research on this material and i was really wondering about if you had coping strategies because this is you know you deal with infanticide would you deal with the criminalization of fertility control very very heavy heavy topics a lot of racism involved a lot of sexism involved so I was just wondering how was it as an experience to deal with this kind of material
1: yeah I think that's it's such a interesting question because when I first got into the archives I mean this is not 18th uh, century manuscript handwriting right so I'm not saying it was that hard but um it was hard for me to actually just read the cases to (laughs) actually read them to understand Mm -hmm. what the words meant because I wasn't used to Mm -hmm. late 19th or early 20th century port handwritten Portuguese. And so I actually think that helped me in the beginning, just because it slowed me down from reading all of these horrible stories. Like it took Mm -hmm. me a while. Um, Mm. And then once I got um, uh, more proficient at it, uh, because I transcribed all of my cases, um, oh wow! Yeah, I I have to say, I uh, one of my students, um, I I had my graduate students read the manuscript so that they could give me some feedback before I went into copy edits. And um, one of my graduate students, I I told my students they asked me somewhat of the same question: How do you read these cases of women dying from abortions or? murdering their newborn infants um and I I said well it's it's really made me it made me angry th- to read these cases I said it made me more of an angry feminist because of the injustice that mm-hmm. most of these that these women faced um and the really lack of choices and and the 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 constraints on their decision making um, was hard to read again and again in addition mm-hmm. to Physical and emotional pain, right? Um, and so, I think a coping strategy. I think what what came out of that was this focus on women's experiences and lives. You know that mm-hmm. I had somewhat of a duty to center those experiences and write them, um, not from a judgmental point of view, but trying to understand why women chose you know within the idea of constrained choice that choice is not a free um, option but why they did certain things rather than judging them for doing one thing or not another Mm -hmm. Um, and so i think really by writing their stories it allowed me to sort of work through them as well
0: yeah and um That was something that I noticed very, very much, the centering of those experiences, because your chapters all tended to start with exactly a vignette or or a a case, rather, of of one of these women. So, for example, your first chapter starts with a very tragic story of Isaltina Vieira. Um, And so this is a moment in her case where, the fine line between the medicalization and the criminalization of motherhood or of birth control comes through very clearly. And so specifically the gray areas where the power of the physician intersects with that of the police and with projects of nation building also come through. So I think it would be really interesting for for listeners for you to unpack this issue a little bit more, Um, especially these notions of yeah, scientific motherhood, the essentializing of, um, of of gender roles vis-a-vis projects of national regeneration, eugenic improvement, and racial whitening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'll explain the story that I start the book with just very briefly. but right. mm-hmm. So Isalina Vieira um, was 29 years old. And in 1912, she went to one of few public maternity hospitals that the state had just built with the help of philanthropic um uh agencies um and she went to give to give birth at a public hospital but the physician the on-duty physician turned her away because there were no available beds and she ends up giving birth on the sidewalk in front of the hospital and the child dies from falling to the sidewalk, and the police off uh, the police chief instead of sending the child to the morgue and Isalina perhaps to another public hospital, uh, decides to investigate her for infanticide for for causing the death of her child. Um, and so when I read this case, I remember I I I would take pictures in the archive and I would come home and transcribe it at home, and I remember I told my partner. Clayton, and also my roommate at the time, we were all living in Rio, Rio, I was like, oh my gosh, this this case is crazy. I can't believe that they investigated her for infanticide when they turned her away from the hospital. Um, And so this was the case that actually made me shift towards these gray areas. Mm -hmm. I was like, this isn't just a story about abortion and infanticide. This is also a story about poor health and the policing of reproduction in general, right? Um, So this idea of why the, the police officer would investigate iselina Vieira for infanticide rather than help her out was sort of a guiding principle. Um, and so in relation to this idea of you have scientific motherhood, essentializing gender roles um, and race and reproduction, Isalina's case happens at a, a crucial time in in. Brazilian history. So you have the abolition of slavery in 1888, and um, the institution of the first Republican government a year later, so the first republic. Um, And at this time, you have these new ideas about well, new or newly packaged, um, or repackaged ideas about gender and race. So, uh, this idea that the foundation of a strong family, I mean, a, the foundation of a strong nation is the nuclear family, an old idea, but repackaged for a modern world. Um, and a nuclear family has a male, uh, patriarch breadwinner and a, a, a woman who is a dutiful wife and mother. Um, the way it's repackaged from sort of these older, uh, long-standing ideas is that now a dutiful wife and mother needs to be properly trained through the medical profession, right? So it's no longer mm-hmm. that women just have natural, um, inherent maternal natures. Now that they need to have take those natural uh, maternal natures, and they need those need to be trained uh, for the modern world. So women need to know how to dress and clean their children. Um, yeah and and so on. So of course they still want to have children. That's a given. But now physicians need to help them have better children. Um, in terms of race, you had uh, as you know very well, scientific racism swirling across the globe in the late 19th century and in Brazil this this sort of morphs into a whitening thesis around the time that Isalina gives birth. So this idea that Brazil's you know, quote-unquote racial problem would be solved Uh, both through immigration of white uh, people into Brazil and then uh, interracial sex. So if uh, Brazilians of African descent are having sex with uh, Brazilians of European descent, eventually the white race will win Mm -hmm. out. And this is, you know, we know this is based on um, erroneous ideas of how heredity works, right? That there was sort of a white Mm -hmm. gene, but that's sort of behind it. And so the way these two intersect though, um, or that that I argue in the book is that you know someone asked me, you're going to have a problem with eugenics, right? So whitening mm-hmm. turns into eugenics in the in the next decade, that they want to improve the Brazilian race. so if the if the government is racist and uh, ev- but ev- but they also think that every woman should be a mother, what about women of color who are mothers, right? or mm-hmm. women of color who are practicing fertility control. Because just theoretically, if the government is racist and they don't want, and they want to whiten the population, then you would think they wouldn't want women of color color having children.
0: Absolutely. Right? yeah. Right?
1: But if these women of color are not having children, then they're going against the gendered um, order of society. Right? And mm-hmm. I, I argue in the book um, that because of the form eugenics took in Brazil, which was... Uh, as Nancy Lay Steppen has, has Mm -hmm. demonstrated was, was Lamarckian or, or um, which led to positive or preventative eugenic measures like better hygiene rather than um, negative eugenic measures like sterilization that uh, the, the, the legal and medical professions really believe that all women, regardless of color or class should be reproducing um, because eventually the population would whiten itself Um, And so this meant that they condemned all women for practicing fertility control, um, regardless of color, race and class. Uh, So I don't know if I've explained that sort of not, but that was really one of the theoretical problems I had to approach um, in the book.
0: No, and I think that came, that came out really well. And that is especially that sort of very, the Brazilian thesis of whitening, how it trumps these notions of a more um, sort of Mendelian, genetically defined form of eugenics, which right. is more familiar to the United States. And so Brazil's unique position also as a country with the largest Afro descendant population had quite a few other sort of racial problems to, to to sort out. And I mean, I even have 18th century the, uh, sources that talk about whitening in a Lamarckian way. So right. it's an enduring thesis, I think. Um, no, so I think that came out really, really well and sort of, and I think it's important to, to have like these cases of um, where the essentializing of gender roles actually trumps the racist policies of, um, of the government. Um, and so perhaps we can move to the next case where you talk about Jovelina Pereira and the infanticide charge that she faces. Um, and so in, in her case, you have race and gender, Uh, And you demonstrate how they intersect, of course, and into broader frameworks that regard citizenship, but also criminal responsibility, which is both defined medically and legally. Um, And so here there's a very specific paradox paradox, um, between the way Jovelina is deemed legally responsible for infanticide, or in other words, how she is considered a full citizen, in the eyes of the criminal system, while at the same time sort of extent uh, First Republic legal systems also frame women as dependents incapable of making legal decisions. So I think this, if you could unpack this paradox of legal responsibility and criminal responsibility within the essentializing of gender roles and the the emergence of the Vargas regime, that would be very interesting.
1: Yeah. So uh, in chapter one, I'm sort of laying the framework, the legal and medical ideologies um, for the rest of the book. And one of the things I found is that women uh, until 1932 could not vote and until much, much later uh, still were subordinate uh, within marriages, right? So they didn't have uh, civil rights within marriage. Um so they have these restricted civil rights, uh, severely restricted civil rights, but under criminal law, they can be held fully responsible for things like homicide or adultery or or other um, criminal acts or the mm-hmm. acts that were criminalized at the time. So one of those is infanticide. So here, um, and infanticide was an interesting uh, crime because it's going against the sort of in, um, maternal natural right uh, mm-hmm. state of a woman right and so it's a it's a pr- particularly heinous crime in that it threatens um gendered gender roles um mm-hmm. and so i found that again in civil law for instance fetuses almost had more rights than women did because mm-hmm. um the civil code of 1916 basically said that a a, a person's uh juridical life begins at birth, but they still hold civil rights from conception. Mm -hmm. Um, And this idea of a fetus having some rights from conception was used by pro-life. I mean, I'm using that term anachronistically, but um, for instance, Catholic physicians or theologians who would argue against therapeutic abortions, right? Mm -hmm, They would use mm -hmm. the civil code. So you do have this sort of contradiction where women are full citizens, if you could give them that, in criminal law, but not under civil law and other aspects. You know, a a married woman couldn't uh, work outside the home without her husband's permission. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. She couldn't represent herself in any civil lawsuit without her husband, but she could represent herself in a criminal lawsuit. I think that's the clearest um, example. And later in the book, I show actually how, despite this sort of full citizenship in criminal law, that's not actually how it plays out um, in the courts. Yeah.
0: Right. And so I think there was thinking of... Books like *Killing the Black Body*, etc. I think this is actually there's a very interesting genealogy, uh, and you add a lot to, I think, add a historical depth and a different geographical um, focus to this kind of conversation, which really, which really, I think, is enriching for the literature. And so, if we can move to the to the next. Um, Chapter, I actually, could you actually debate this issue of uh, infanticide versus abortion? Because it seems to be an enduring problem throughout the book, Uh, in particular for the police and all the all the physicians and everyone who's intervening in sort of, I would say, the surveillance of the of the female body.
1: Yeah. Do you mean they couldn't differentiate between abortion and infanticide or they how, what, what exactly do you mean
0: by that? Yeah, they, very often, so often you, you, you have cases of women who are charged of both things. Right. Uh, You have cases of, and, and these, these, um, let's say physicians, and, and then the police seem to hesitate between charging women with either abortion or infanticide. And it's, this seems to be an enduring issue. So, why were they why was this problem of infanticide versus abor- abortion so enduring?
1: right? so I think there's there's a couple things there. so one is, and this is still happening today uh, in our current uh, political debates, this idea of when does an abortion become infanticide, right? and legal definitions don't necessarily map on mm-hmm. medical definitions so right um like this is in relation to viability, and mm-hmm. uh, and and these sort of uh, medical definitions that have to be mapped onto a legal field that's not necessarily equipped to to include those accurately in their own legislation. Um, but the, the the changes between. Okay, so there's two aspects here. One is that the um, the legal field, what I find in my book, at least in Rio de Janeiro in the early 20th century, is that um, the police and the courts um, are pretty overzealous in their investigations of mm-hmm. abor- both abortion and infanticide. Mm-hmm. Overzealous to the point that they're... Investigating non criminal events like miscarriage or stillbirth, or like the case of Isalina Vieira, a right. medical neglect. Um, they're investi- investigating those as possible abortions or infanticide, but they don't actually um, charge most women with abortion or infanticide. And the ones that they do, most of those women actually walk free from charges, which I can get into a little bit later. Um, There is one, I only found one case where they, uh, which I have, uh, I start chapter seven with, where the woman was charged with both abortion and infanticide. Um, But the judge threw out the case because of that legal, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that was not a, you know, the judge said you can't uh, commit abortion and then commit infanticide. That would just be... Um, infanticide. So you know a lot of the the these issues were not just occurring in Brazil, whether it was abortion mm-hmm. or infanticide. Um, but a lot of it had to do with sort of figuring out um, when there should figuring out in a period when there's not the medical technologies to pinpoint viability, to pinpoint mm-hmm. these sort of aspects of fetal development to figure out when legally they could change the definition from abortion um, to infanticide. And this is happening, you know, Brazilian jurists and physicians are reading and writing about European and American debates as well. So these sort of debates are, are going across the globe. Um, And, you know, as I said, there are still, for instance, President Trump said, I think in the 2016 um, presidential debate said you know, they're doing these late-term abortions. I'm paraphrasing here. The late-term <laughs> abortions, they're pulling babies out and killing them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, something like that. So yeah. there he's conflating abortion or a late-term um, – The I don't like to use the term partial birth abortion, but that's what the the – right uses um Mm -hmm. and they're conflating that with infanticide so it's not like these ideas have or this this distinction or this muddling of a distinction has gone away with more advanced technology it really has to do with the importance of you know what relative importance you put on fetal versus maternal rights
0: absolutely yeah i think that's really that's really the the crux is like are you centering the fetus or are you centering the mother and and um the misunderstandings seem to roll off of that.
1: Right. Um, Yes.
0: So uh, maybe moving to chapter three, uh, where you talk about the first, the foundation of the first maternity hospital in 1933 in Rio de Janeiro. And, Mm That chapter focuses largely on efforts made by the political regime, by elites and physicians to accomplish a certain vision of the nature of the nation, rather, which hinged on scientific motherhood. But also um, you demonstrate how very little actually changed in the reality that people lived in, uh, in the lived experience, especially of, of women that under, underwent these procedures and this, these experiences. So the crux in this chapter, to an extent, it seems to me that you, or I thought this was part was particularly interesting, sort of the watchful eye of the obstetrician, which is a figure that is, is very prominent in this part of the book, And how the discretionary power that the obstetrician and the physician has to make decisions on whether or not they believe patients who miscarried and whether or not they decide to call the police. Um, So ultimately, there's this gray zone where these professionals, this rising uh, expert class, is making decisions on whether or not to criminalize these poor women. And so if you could unpack that a little bit more, I think it would be really interesting.
1: Yeah. And we're talking, sorry, are we talking about the chapter birthing life and death? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of, there's been some really great research on um, the medicalization of childbirth in Brazil. And by medicalization of childbirth, I just mean that it moves from a home to a hospitalized Mm -hmm. setting um, where physicians and not, let's say, family members or midwives, lay midwives are the attending parties. Um, but there, I, I felt like with some research, there was a lot of, well, in the early to mid 20th century, childbirth moved from the home to the hospital, but that's sort of a broad range. And mm-hmm. I found from my research that, yes, there was great efforts on the part of um, philanthropic um, organizations and government to to hospitalize childbirth, but there wasn't really the same, at least on on behalf of the government, the same financial um, support that was needed to actually build enough hospitals to attend to the uh, population of women of childbearing age. And so you have a lot of rhetoric and attempts. But not a lot of actual change mm-hmm. until after um, until the mid twentieth century, and I'm, I'm, this is a is a urban story. So of course, mm-hmm. this would be somewhat changed if you're looking in Brazil's rural areas, right? Um, and so I just wanted to say, okay, so what was it like to give birth in the early twentieth mm-hmm. century? And what I found is that most of my sources for the um, for uh, the chapter actually come from legal documents and mm-hmm. this is because these legal documents, I was talking about the overzealous policing. So a police officer would say, Oh, well, this was a stillbirth that happened at home. I'm going to investigate it as a possible infanticide. And in that investigation, we can get the woman's entire experience of giving birth at home because she narrates it for the police. Um, and, and so you have this sort of uh, this interesting, um, conundrum for physicians who are really trying to take control over childbirth, but they're not very successful mm-hmm. because they don't have the institutional governmental support that would be, that basically the financial support needed to do that. Um, and so, you know, you have this, yes, the physicians want to be the watchful eye, but they don't necessarily actually play that role. Um, by the 1930s, uh, most chi- most um, deliveries still occur at home, but there is an expansion in the public health system. and so the- so physicians can't start to play a larger role sort of interacting um, with women and then with the police. So an example of this would be uh, for example, uh, a woman who, let's say she miscarried at home and then she went to a public hospital in the 1930s. Uh, Because she retained some of the placenta and had an infection, right? I have some cases of physicians then calling the police because Mm -hmm. they suspect an abortion, and these these sort of cases don't come about earlier just because the public health system wasn't um, equipped enough Mm -hmm. to deal with it. And I'm not saying that by 19 the you know mid to late 1930s it was a fantastic system, but it had expanded under Vargas enough that. Uh, physicians do have more of a role in women's reproductive lives than they had previously for good or bad.
0: Yeah, for good or bad. But uh, to me, it was very interesting to see this intersection of uh, police vigilance to an extent and medical vigilance and how they they overlap so strongly. I think that... I this was a point I, I taught a history of public health class this summer and I was trying to make this point. And I really wished I had this book because I think this book really brings this topic and really brings these two professional classes in a very direct dialogue. And so it's actually interesting. You mentioned that the types of sources you had were more legal documents, which makes perfect sense, um, for that. Um, And so perhaps we're moving to the next chapter on the plague of criminal abortions. Um, Here you have, you start with this National Academy of Medicine report and uh, this um, committee that they formed and where they talk about criminal abortions as an epidemic and a very pressing biosocial problem in Brazil. Uh, a problem that was, according I think I think this was the language of the document, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was yes. a, it was a infecting Brazilian society. Um, okay. I love these metaphors, so they're very <laughs>
1: uh, flowery, I guess.
0: Yeah, they they are. Um, it's very 18th century. It's like you, I deal with a lot of this in my work. Um, so here you also tell us a little bit, and you start with Maria Vieira da Silva and her death from an illegal abortion. And I think you reflect very beautifully, uh, and with great sensibility, on the notion of this biosocial problem. So you sort of you turn this how the National Academy of Medicine defined a biosocial problem, um, criminal abortion as a biosocial problem. You sort of turn it on its head, um, and you redefine this idea of biosocial problem. So I'd like you to unpack that idea a little bit more, but also perhaps speak more about the increased medicalization of the nuclear family uh, in Brazil and how that was seen as a sort of this manifestation of, um, a physical manifestation uh, of um, rather, I should say, abortion as a physical manifestation of a woman's rejection of patriarchal understandings of sexuality and motherhood. And here I'm citing you. Uh, so if you could unpack yeah. these things a little bit.
1: Yeah. So um, I, I came across, and other scholars have written about this debate, um, but there is in 1918 to like 1921 or 22, the uh, Brazil's National Academy of Medicine, as you said, which was like, is it's like the um, equivalent of the AMA in the United mm-hmm. States, mm-hmm. Um, was, Talking about, or put forth a plan, uh, which had various points on how to combat criminal the practice of criminal abortion in Rio, in Rio de Janeiro, which was where the um, academy was was housed. And as you said, I mean, I couldn't believe it when I read it was quote a very pressing biosocial problem. and mm-hmm. quote. I'm like, this is very Fukuyama. It's very Fukuyama. <laughs> we don't, you know, I often critique people they like they just try to find Foucault in the sources but here it just jumped out at me um, yeah. that it was there um and they saw this as a problem that because women were quote promoting a true strike of the uterus with the yeah. pretext of revolting against the laws of men mm-hmm. um and so I thought this is a biosocial problem for men in the sense that they see it as a threat to not only their individual patriarchal control cuz most of these physicians mm-hmm. if not all are men but yep. also to their patriarchal control and the control that their patriarchal um profession exercises over women's bodies right so you have men as individual patriarchs as fathers mm-hmm. as husbands and then mm-hmm. there are what i maybe you could call professional patriarchs right as obstetricians as other forms uh, as other types of physicians um in a period when the medical profession is really trying to insert itself in public debates about the family, right, In uh, about the family, about gender roles, um, because with the First Republic, you have the official separation of church and state, and the medical mm-hmm. profession is really inserting itself and saying, hey, we have more um, knowledge about gender and sex and reproduction um, than the church does, so we should be the experts on it, right? And that's where the sort of medicalization of the family comes in. Um, And this debate is really about the the debate in the medical um, association is really about what role individual men should play in policing Mm -hmm. women and what role male physicians should play in policing women. And there's not a consensus within the medical profession. Right. The one consensus is that no woman should have an abortion Mm -hmm. um, at all. And so that's sort of the underlying idea. And then. Of course, I I thought, okay, I'm going to start the chapter, as you said, by contrasting that with a case of a woman who does get an abortion and who dies because it's unsafe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're right. This is a biosocial problem because Maria died um, and left her child uh, without a mother, right? And the reason that she... Um, told the police she underwent an abortion because she died during the investigation Right, that her husband wasn't, or her partner wasn't working um, and she couldn't afford to have another child. Um, and and so, you know, Maria is the exact woman that these physicians should be helping, right? Thinking about right. how, but they don't actually, to me, it seemed that they didn't really care about Maria, right? But they rather mm-hmm. cared about, um combating abortion at all cost um and sort of professionalizing their own field Mm -hmm. um and i just thought it was interesting because when maria so uh maria Vieira da silva when she went to get an abortion um she had she brought her child who i don't have how old he was i think he was between two and four years old she brought her child with her and he was in the room when she underwent the abortion um and to me, it's, you know, there was this idea in the debate that women who have abortions reject motherhood, but it's very clear right. that that's not the case, mm-hmm. that women, that mothers had abortions or committed infanticide even um, thinking about their living children, mm-hmm. right? That it's not either or, either you're a monster and you reject right. motherhood or you're an angel and you accept it. And that sort of comes out in, in this chapter as well.
0: Yeah, I I thought that was, you did that very well. It was sort of very, um, with great sensitivity, because one of the reasons Maria elicited a lot of suspicion from physicians was the fact that she was unmarried to her current partner. Right. Um, And so this in and of itself raised a lot of suspicions among them uh, uh, about her case and the fact that she mostly sought out an abortion so she could continue to, to uh, provide for her existing child, existing child. And, um, I think this is, this is a paradox that it, or it's a tragedy. I would say that that is not as frequently reflected upon, but it's really, really interesting and really important. So I thought it was really, um, meaningful that you, that you brought it out and, and discussed it, um, and so m- moving along the to to the next chapter, Chapter Five, you deal with the an, an issue that I think was very interesting. I thought the approach based on gossip and rumor and denunciations of women's fertility control was very interesting um and so here you you talk about you start with the story of evnina dos Santos and Inace Maria do Nascimento, who was accused um One was accused of procuring an abortion and the other was accused of being an accessory to that crime. And it turns out that nothing happened. They did not procure uh, abortions. Um, And it was a hoax. The whole accusation was a hoax uh, done by a neighbor. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Who buried Um, a doll, who buried a doll to me,
0: buried a doll to do this. So um, I thought this was, So here you explore ideas about proper female sexuality, gender, and race, and in particular the notion of immoral sex. Uh, And you also explain and unpack accusation of fertility control uh, and how they are revealed by how they're not actually a top-down imposition. But how they're so you even use Gramsci's hegemony, if I'm not confusing yeah. chapters, but you use that notion of hegemony to, to say that actually people were from the a common social class were surveilling each other on, on this, and on, on what proper moral conduct and behavior for women was. So if you could unpack this a little bit more as well, the notion of 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 gossip and and this notion of um a disciplinary ret- rhetoric within the same social class,
1: yeah. So you know, I did not start this project um thinking I would write a chapter on gossip and denunciation. <laughs> uh, I didn't. But in reading my sources, i i I coded each case uh, with keywords so I could look them up easily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I realized as I was coding, I'm like, there's so much gossip. There's denunciation. This has to be there is something going on um, with this. And so it made me step back and look at that. Um, And this idea that, you know, women, men and women of the same social class um, of the same skin color uh, were denouncing or gossiping on each other for, Oh, that woman over there had an abortion or that woman over there has had sex with various men of different races It Mm -hmm. made me think about this, and I I think about this a lot today. So it happens all the time if we want to think about it, right? So, oh, um, absolutely. Okay, so you know, (laughs) I teach at a large public university in the south with fraternities and sororities, and I've have overheard conversations of um, women in. It's not just in sororities, but I'm going to use that as an example saying, well, she is such a slut. Excuse my language. You know, she's had sex with too many people, blah, blah, blah. And there's that same thing. You have a same social gender identity, Mm -hmm. but you're making judgments on someone else. Um, And that to me is just human. It's interesting in human nature. And I'm not excluding myself from having participated, not necessarily in that conversation, but in, you know, these sort of conversations as we're growing Mm -hmm. up. Um, And then the other aspect I found interesting was this idea of living situations, um, which I bring up in relation to childbirth. But, you know, this is early 20th century Rio. And um, the book does focus um, more on poor women, right? That's often who comes up in the cases more, although I do have um, middle class women up here as well. And they had no privacy. Now, privacy, you know, is a is a construct that we create. So I understand that I am using it anachronistically, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in a tenement house, if you give birth, everyone knows. And then if the child doesn't cry, the child cries and then doesn't cry anymore, everyone knows it's dead. right? Right. And so it's not like you can easily hide it. And that was a big part of these sort of gossip and denunciations was the was the cramped living situation? So, just a couple things. I mm-hmm. I was interested in. Did people believe what they were saying? So when they said right. that woman mm-hmm. had an abortion and they went to the police, did they believe what they were saying, or are they using it for other? Um, I would say you know nefarious motives, like mm-hmm. they didn't like their neighbor or. You know, they they wanted to um, not pay their rent, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is what happened. And I actually think it's a little bit of both, that some denouncers and gossipers believed what they were saying. Others both believed what they were saying and used it to gain some personal, Mm -hmm. uh, something personal out of it. So, for instance, um, there was a case of a newspaper reporter who wrote this really incredible uh, newspaper article accusing... This midwife of performing abortions, committing infanticide and a whole lot of other things. And Mm -hmm. it turns out that she probably did um, work as an abortion provider as well as deliver babies Mm -hmm. um, and provide other reproductive health care. But what the underlying issue was that she was the journalist's landlord, landlady, land person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was she was trying to evict him because he wasn't paying his rent. And so instead of being evicted, he wrote this newspaper article trying to slander her so that mm-hmm. she wouldn't evict him. So mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, what he was saying was somewhat true in the sense that it does appear she was you know, yeah. she was an abortion provider. But the way he said it was completely um, exaggerated, right? So mm-hmm. you have to sort of think about the truth and what's not, and and you know it's not important that I, I that we I found out what was actually true, mm-hmm. but sort of this interplay of moral boundaries and moral mm-hmm. understandings mm-hmm. of gender, race, sex, uh, and also just the realities of living, you know, in a being poor in the in the early 20th century and using these sort of gossip to 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 get ahead of your neighbor.
0: Yeah, um <laughs> I think this actually is just human experience and pettiness
1: and yeah, there's a lot compli- of pettiness, yes.
0: complicated human relationships and uh sketchy people.
1: <laughs> right. I think
0: this is ultimately, yeah, it's um how we interact and our lives are still like this. We still deal with people like this. And um, it's it's erroneous to think that is either one thing or the other, or that we'll, we'll, as historians who just look at paperwork, very often can actually get at the truth. But I I, I really... I really like that you focused so much on these experiences because these, these elements really, really came through, but also it, it brought to, to attention that everyone can participate in these systems of, of sort of a vigilance of mutual vigilance, um, and can be part of the problem fundamentally.
1: Right. Um, I, I just think back to when I was in high school and like the horrible things I said about other girls to sort of, Ingratiate myself with uh, one social group or not with another, and right. I was mm-hmm. participating in patriarchy. Right, we all
0: right, became... absolutely, yeah, and, and it's more ubiquitous than we realize.
1: Right, and that we're all part of it, and mm-hmm. and you know, it. I think it comes out clear with these abortion denunciations, but you can find it in many other aspects of our lives as well. So,
0: yeah, um, absolutely. So moving to uh, chapter six, I think. This chapter very interestingly dealt with police agents and with the expanding field of legal medicine. Uh, particularly, there's this—you uh, you unpack a lot about criminology and abortion, uh, which I thought was really interesting, and sort of the police, as you call it, as a pa- public patriarch, uh, which is definitely a notion I want you to unpack. Um, but I think one thing that became very very apparent and was very well, um, dealt with very, with sensibility in this chapter was this persistent violation of bodily integrity through pelvic exams for no reason at all. And talking about, you know, a problem that still exists today, this Mm -hmm. is uh, absolutely still ubiquitous. So here, this chapter, you start with the case of Anita Rodriguez and the death of her child two days after birth. Um, and even while it was determined that your child was cared for before death, her mar- marital status becomes this focus of attention. Um, and so here there's there's race, there's class, there's, of course, behavior. Um, but you also, in it, you, des- you describe how police precincts act as these triage centers um, and even while they, by the end of the chapter, you describe how at the, towards the end of the Vargas era, um, this role of the police as triage center diminishes, an intrusive policing model had already been created. And so social class and race become these proxies to assess the likelihood of a woman to pursue abortion and infanticide. Um, I'd like you to unpack, this was a lot, so I'd like you to unpack Um some of these fundamental issues, but I think focusing a lot on legal medicine and criminology and these, the sort of the, the, the like determining the likelihood sort of the futuricity that a woman can commit abortion. I think this was a particularly interesting element of the chapter.
1: Yeah. So this is, this chapter is where the dissertation began. Um, this was the first chapter I wrote, obviously in a much different form, um, mm-hmm. but the kernels were there and, as I was reading these my sources, these uh, police investigations and court cases, but mainly the police investigations, I um, I kept coming across investigations, as I've said before, that were not criminal and they were deemed non criminal at the end. Um, so they you know they never went to trial, and I was thinking, well, why why is the police even looking at these cases? Doesn't isn't this something that right, a hospital should be dealing with or the public health official or the morgue, right? And so it took a lot of research into the structure of the police um, with the help of scholars um, like Marcos Bretas, Amy Chazko, um Olivia Maria da Cunha, right, who mm-hmm. have worked on the police. Uh, and what I found is that actually until more or less until the Vargas era, um, the Rio de Janeiro police were sort of arbiters of both criminal investigations um, and uh, civil state issues like admittance to public hospitals, um, access to burial services in municipal mm-hmm, cemeteries, mm-hmm. Um, the orphanages, the, the police mediated access to all of those things. So what yeah. you had then is that if you had money, you could bypass the police and pay for your own burial or Mm -hmm. Um, have a physician sign a death certificate. But if you were a poor woman of color and let's say you have a stillbirth or a miscarriage at home and you need help with the burial um, or the paperwork, you had to go to the police. And then Mm -hmm. the police decided whether they would either criminally investigate you or just, Mm -hmm. you know, sign the form that you needed to then go to the cemetery. I mean, for any of us who have lived in Brazil or other France, whatever other bureaucratic, country you want to <laughs> understand the importance of signed paperwork and how difficult it can be to get that so magnify that by a, a thousand because you've just given birth and your child is dead right um so i, I had to tease out the 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 actual institutional administrative role of the mm-hmm. to understand why they were investigating so many non-criminal reproductive events like a miscarriage or a stillbirth um as possible crimes right um, and so that's So so that's how that intrusive model, as you said, started, right? Because they had this sort of dual mandate of criminal um, enforcers or crime um, and this sort of administrative mandate of Mm -hmm. paperwork. Um, And with that administrative mandate, it's actually the administrative mandate that um, allows them to become more intrusive rather than necessarily the criminal mandate, um the administrative mandate obviously is put into the criminal mandate but without that they wouldn't have had they wouldn't have been in contact with women uh, who had miscarried for example. Um and so that's where I see the police as as public patriarch as right. as you said because it's police officers um and pol- and particularly police um the the police chief of any specific precinct was a delegado. Mm-hmm. Now, and he was trained in law, he had a law degree. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not trained in medicine. So but he decided who whether to criminally investigate, or to administer the um, necessary paperwork. And so he is drawing on yes, his legal training. But also I firmly argue, his subjective understandings of who practices fertility control or not, and in a society that is racist and sexist, um, obviously there was this idea that poor women, poor women of color would practice fertility control at higher rates. Um, mm-hmm. That's
0: yeah.
1: right. And so that's how that sort of public patriarch comes out. And then by the time that the Vargas era comes about and they sort of take away some of these administrative duties from the police, mm-hmm. um, I argue that it's a little bit too late because that intrusive model is there right? And now it sort of extends into different realms where physicians at public hospitals now make that that sort of decision of whether they should call the police or or not, but they're often still calling the police. So if a woman comes in after what she says is a miscarriage and the physician thinks it's not a miscarriage, Mm -hmm. it's an abortion because she fits the profile of who they think practices abortion, they then call the police. Um, And, you know, I would say that this policing model at least in rio is still somewhat there again you know it's mm-hmm. not they're not triaging miscarriages and stillbirths mm-hmm. um but uh this this idea of of um who is practicing fertility control um is still part of i think the the policing of of abortion at least in in rio um, I think in 2014, they had Operation Herod, mm-hmm. which is where they shut down a bunch of illegal abortion clinics. And just the idea of Operation Herod, like the name they gave to it is a interesting yeah. choice. Um, I think it's, you know, it,
0: it really unpacks and demonstrates the discretionary power these professions had and yes. how interconnected that they were and how... Um, being believed was was such a subjective and ad hoc reality for many women, which was highly correlated with their socioeconomic and their racial status, on the respectability that they that they projected to 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 the physician or the police so I think these this is I think one of the most uh, critical problems uh, still today is so much the the power exactly that these professions have um and how you're deemed to be a risk citizen or a, c- a citizen that will misbehave um based on a lot of those uh, a lot of those proxies that are racialized that are gendered um, et etc um so moving to the last chapter and I, we're going to return a little bit to something you already alluded to in the introduction i think in the first or second question but um, you start with the case of Maria de Jesus, who is sort of had has is a case with gruesome and tragic details. Um, and here you continue to explore the conflation by the police between abortion and infanticide, and you explore the contradictions in jurisprudence, particularly between the more universalist framework of the 1890s legal framework and a more positivist and idiosyncratic way of understanding abortion and infanticide. And so positivist in this sense matters because it's not about this universalist framework anymore of a crime is um, equal to, to everyone. For the positivist, the circumstances leading up to the crime were actually much more important than the crime itself. So part of the solution to this to this paradox between universalism and positivism that you encounter in the law uh, was medical, and namely was the deployment of medical ideas about postpartum hysteria, um, and arguing particularly that women you. who practiced fertility control were irrational. Uh, so if you could, you already alluded to, to these women who actually committed these crimes or were charged with these crimes, but very often got a, got away with it, quote unquote. <laughs> um, if you could unpack that more uh, and sort of uh, explain how postpartum madness was used and deployed uh, by these often seen as dishonorable women to regain their, their honor, I think that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah, so... Um- you, you, in the in this introduction to this question, you talk about so the 1890 penal code, which is the criminal legislation um, that sort of was in. Um, I can only think of the word in Portuguese, but that that <laughs> was in place um, throughout the period the book focuses on um, was passed as a sort of um, of, of uh, this universalist understanding of that a crime is a is a crime regardless of the person Mm -hmm. who who practices it but in the in the 1890s um the legal profession in Rio de Janeiro was positivist in nature in which it Mm -hmm. saw the need to individualize crimes and sentencing um based on the person who was practicing it um and so in relation to abortion and infanticide um women could be uh, tried for both abortion and infanticide. That's one change um, from the uh, previous criminal code, which was passed in 1830, where women could not be invested, mm-hmm. could not be charged for abortion. Um, in 1890, they could. And um, as, is, is, uh, co- as was common in many, many criminal codes at the time, there was always a maternal defense of honor clause mm-hmm. that would reduce the... Um, punishment for the crime. So, if the woman practiced abortion or infanticide to um, hide her dishonor, then she could face a, a fewer years in prison or or a lesser fine. These sort of things, and this was common across Latin America and and Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually found that those were not that important. Those honor clauses were not important in the actual practice of the courts. And I think that the this defensive honor clause um, in scholarship, at least in in Brazil, has has sort of functioned as a way to not look at how how cases played out um, on the ground. And what I found was um, that most women. Well, one the Rio de Janeiro court system was understaffed and overworked, mm-hmm. and um, half of all court cases were actually closed, more or less half, were closed due to bureaucratic delays that led to statute of limitations. So, and this is common for many crimes, right? But of the court cases that actually make it to trial, um, in infanticide, most women were either found not guilty or they were found guilty, but acting in a state of temporary insanity, which Mm -hmm. was um, defined as postpartum, temporary postpartum madness, and thus acquitted of the crime. So the maternal clauses were really not very relevant in the sentencing practices. Um, abortion is a little bit different because most women are actually not prosecuted for abortion. The state mm-hmm. decides to go after abortion providers, um, which is also very common today in Brazil. Uh, so this mm-hmm. this continues. Um, and so there was this this sort of lesser known legal tenet of abortion. Um, impermanent states of insanity right which is is somewhat like the insanity plea but not not really because it's all about the impermanence of it right um, that that women are acquitted and so yes then they walk free from charges but I argue that the the act what's actually going on in and this is getting back to what I started Mm -hmm. um, what the when we started the conversation about um Women had criminal had full citizenship in the criminal courts, but no citizenship in the civil courts. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, in the criminal courts, um, by saying that women were irrational and um, in moments of temporary insanity when they, uh, you know, committed infanticide, it's actually further infantilizing women in the courts mm-hmm. that they they're not facing full criminal responsibility. And while okay. this is good for women, right? They don't go to prison, it's ultimately, I say, bad for the larger understanding of women's rights in Brazilian society, because it's saying that no woman in her right mind would um, practice fertility control. And so these women can't hold full responsibility, right? Right.
0: Uh, So there's this essentialist reading of women's natures and instincts as essentially maternal.
1: Right. And by which,
0: yeah, by which fertility control is just inherently irrational.
1: Right. And I mean, I have to say, one of the things I I, I struggled with is that especially or only with the infanticide cases, some of these cases are very troubling to read. Mm -hmm. where Women are decapitating their their, their newborn infants. They're stabbing them in the neck. Um, They are not easy cases to read. And so I'm not saying that um, and there has been some literature and I don't want to you know read current social science or medical literature back in time mm-hmm. but there has been some literature where um, women who commit infanticide are more likely to be give birth alone to have denied their pregnancies um, and which is often the case for a lot of, of the women I have and yeah and, and that they aren't necessarily thinking clearly when they're committing infanticide, right? That's fine. but that doesn't mean that the overarching, desire to not have that child is irrational, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I think reproductive, reproductive autonomy does not necessarily condone these crimes.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, you know, that, that women perhaps were acting, you know, they did horrendous acts, but that doesn't mean that the underlying sentiment of the feeling they couldn't have a child um, was in itself irrational.
0: Exactly. Um, so, Cassie, I've taken a lot of your time now, uh, and we've sort of gone through a lot of the book. Uh, I was wondering if there was something we didn't discuss that you'd like to discuss, and what are you working on now?
1: Um, so... I think we discussed um really most parts of the book that i I wanted to talk about. I guess the one thing i um would end with about the book is that i um when I got the index because I paid someone to do the index, which I would highly recommend if you have the funds. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> when I got the index and I look, I was looking through it to make sure everything was okay, and I realized that all of these women whose stories I included they're all in the index um and that to me was sort of I think demonstrative of the importance mm-hmm. of including their experiences and their lives in this in this in the telling yeah. of this story rather than just Getulio Vargas and you know yeah yeah um, but... the physicians who attended them so I think that's you know something I would end with on that was a satisfying to me to see that. Um, That was part of
0: the thoughtfulness I was talking about, about this book.
1: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, But so what am I working on now? So I am working on uh, a new project about um, enslaved women uh, and reproduction uh, in 19th, well, late 18th and early 19th century Brazil. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually looking at cases uh, where enslaved women are relying on the law of the free womb which is a Roman precedent Mm -hmm. long Mm -hmm. before 1871 which is when Brazil passed its own law of the free womb Mm -hmm. um, in relation to uh, the abolition of slavery so I'm kind of I want to take this this longer history of the law of the free womb or this history of the law of the free womb and and go back in time I think it's a much longer history in the Portuguese um, world than just the late nineteenth century in Brazil, um with the law of the free womb. So going back, you know, to the Roman precedent and then tracing that throughout Portuguese colonial history. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now,
0: oh, that sounds amazing,
1: yeah, it's um that's- it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's
0: um it's not been done, and uh, I think it's, yeah.
1: Really, I wanna read that.
0: <laughs> I wanna um, see I wanna see results out of that research. I'm really very interested in this.
1: Yeah, and then the other this is just a side project, but um and it kind of gets back to the question you asked about how do I how did I cope with reading these stories. Um I'm writing a piece about how we approach reading about uh, historical pain or reading about pain and historical documents. Mm-hmm. Um because You know, uh, a lot of these cases, they're painful. They made me physically cringe when I read them. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's something that as historians, we need to pay attention to our own embodied reactions. So that's sort of a side project.
0: I cringed when reading the cases you talked about in this book. I cringe sometimes when I'm in the archive and I'm looking at my own materials, especially those that involve punishing slaves and enslaved people um and uh, this is partly also where my question came from because i found that uh, i had a a period where i was writing about these cases for about two weeks and i noticed i was like in a bad mood i was sort of a bit depressed um and i needed to take breaks in the archive Mm -hmm. so that's sort of where my my i think that's i think it's a really important sort of for a methods class, even for people to think about, because we are also impacted by our own uh, material. But so, Kasia, thank you. Thank you very much for for all of this. And I I really look forward to reading about those two projects that are coming up.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, reading my book and this great interview. It was lovely to talk to you.